speaker this evening is our brother Bill Jones, and his title shall be, Choose Ye This Day Whom You Will Serve. And he asked me to read from Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff, that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked will perish. I'll now turn it over. Brother Jones. Got it upside down. No, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. First thing I'd like to say this evening is to wish everyone greetings from their brethren and friends at the North Little Rock, Arkansas Ecclesia. We, once again, are truly fortunate that we are able, by the grace and mercy of our Heavenly Father, to be able to attend this New Mexico Bible School. The other evening, when in talking with Brother Ben, after his uh, exhortation the other night, uh, it was mentioned between us that if somebody was on later in the week to speak, that they could just repeat everything that everybody said up until that time and bring up points that had been already made. And, and you could get by real well by doing that because some of the points that uh, have been made this week um, relate to the topic that I would like to present this evening. Now, what I'd like to present is based upon two or three exhortations in the past that um, I gave at my home ecclesia in North Little Rock, but they were given some 25 years ago. Now, I say that not as any statement of longevity in the truth, but as a message that is still meaningful today. For the truth in every age is meaningful. One thing I've always been fascinated with throughout my life is it kind of goes along with the hymn that we just that we just sang. It's it's the subject of law. Now, before anybody starts throwing anything at me, uh, it's not the practice of law, but but the thought of of law, uh, mostly constitutional law, but uh, sometimes civil law too. As a conscientious believer, though, in the gospel of Christ, I realize the commandments given to us regarding our belief in the court systems of man. 
that said, I have remained fascinated by law even from a child. I marvel at the work that the founding fathers of this country did in writing the Constitution um, and the Bill of Rights. These men were very deep thinkers. And some were, were very religious men, too. And, and, and some of the court systems, uh, we have very religious men also. And in fact, uh, I think it was Sunday, we sang hymn number 101, which was penned by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Now, if anybody knows who Oliver Wendell Holmes was, he was a Supreme Court judge. And we sing that. It's a beautiful hymn. It's one of my favorites. Um, but man's law, we see, pales when compared with the law that we find from on high. Now, before anyone might label me a Judaizer, let's consider the, the book that we are all come here to study, this right here, the Bible. It is a compilation of God's laws for mankind. This right here is the greatest book ever written. It's also the greatest book that will ever be written. And it's all about God's law. It's interesting to note that, well, I'm going to turn up something. If, you, if you'd like, turn to Psalm 19 with me. And I'm going to take up my, the, the version I'm going to read from is, is somewhat different than, than what you've got in the King James or, or whatever. Starting at verse 7, where it says the, the law of the Lord is perfect. And I'm going to read... Um, from the, the, the New Jerusalem, or the complete Jew Jewish Bible, uh, from verse 7 on. The Torah of Adonai is perfect, restoring the inner person. The instruction of Adonai is sure, making wise the thoughtless. The precepts of Adonai are right, rejoicing the heart. The mitzvah, or commandment, of Adonai is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Adonai is clean, enduring forever. The rulings of Adonai are true. They are righteous altogether. And we just sang a hymn, this beautiful hymn we sang in, in uh, number 25, kind of stated that, didn't it? More desirable than gold, than much fine gold, also sweeter than honey or drippings from the honeycomb. Through them your servant is warned. In obeying them there is great reward. Who can discern unintentional sins? Cleanse me from hidden faults. Also keep your servant from presumptuous sins so that they won't control me then I will be blameless and free of great offense. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be acceptable in your presence, Adonai, my rock and my redeemer. 
Now, it's interesting to note that from very early on, even in the very beginning, we see the effects of God's law in relation to this earth. Genesis 1.1 reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This first verse of Scripture tells us of an order of things, one might say even of a law itself. For there was order, and we know that the Scripture, we know the Scripture which says that God is not the author of confusion. Verse 2 reads, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, to those of us that do not necessarily hold the, the young earth concept, verse 2 explains a lot of things. In the Hebrew, watohu vabohu reads in English, was without form and void. A better rendering probably would be it became waste and desolation. Now, if this is a more correct rendering of Watohu Vabohu, then again we might be seeing the effect of laws or judgments of God upon the earth at a very early time, or one might say even prehistory. It's not only my belief that we we find the earth in a state of waste and desolation there very early in Genesis because of God's judgments that may have been against it at one time before. And there are many others that believe the same thing. Now with regard to man, which came about in the creation week, we find he entered a world of law or a particular order of things, which was set in place by his creator. Adam was created into this order of law. We can only imagine the conversation between the angel of the Lord and Adam and at Adam's forming of the dust of the earth. When Adam first opened his eyes, he probably saw an angel of God, or possibly even more than one. Much the same as a baby seeing for the first time its mother, its father, and others in attendance. Adam saw the angelic beings there to greet him into the world. We can also be sure that he had the mental capacity to learn and understand with instruction given him of his place and of the reason for his being. He received the commandment regarding eating of the trees of the garden that he was keeping. With the realization and understanding of death, if these commandments were not heeded, God's justice would command that his law and his sentence would be totally understood by Adam and the wife that he was to receive. Otherwise, we could not say that our Creator is a just 
and a righteous creator. Adam had to understand these things. After the fall of Adam and Eve and their being thrust or driven from the garden, we see a law introduced to all of their descendants. The term, the law of sin and death, is what we find mankind in from that point on, born unto. Mankind from then on, even unto today, are found under the federal head of Adam, or we might say man. The righteous creator also instructed Adam of his statutes regarding man's life afterwards on this earth, after he fell. Now, these early laws are not found this far back in secular history. But biblical history shows that their lives were governed by laws and by offerings. Indeed, they must have been for Cain later to become so upset because his offering was rejected. Cain became so upset he slew his brother Abel, which we've gone over in our adult classes this, this, this week, and was therefore or thereafter driven away from the face or presence of the Lord, which we might say probably was also the place where the offerings were given or made. So he was driven away from being able to go to the correct place to do his offerings. Again, there had to be there had to have been laws that they knew, for God would not have done this to Cain if there had been no law against the taking of his brother's life. And this is just an overview of law. Later, some 1,500 or so years afterward, we see that God looked upon the face of the earth and saw that man's heart was only evil continually. So Noah, the eighth person, was saved, and mankind all perished under the waters of the flood. Here again, if no law would have been given then man could not have transgressed enough to cause this punishment. To see law in its correct place, we must look at the circumstances going on before. Brother Robert Roberts writes in his book, The Law of Moses, and I quote, We must not imagine that the, the world was without law from God in the times before the law of Moses. There is clearest evidence that the law, the commandment, and statute were in force, and that men were righteous or wicked according to their attitude towards these during that time. Thus of Abraham, God said to Isaac, He kept my charges, my commandments, my statutes and my laws in Genesis 26.5, which was centuries before the giving of the law of Moses. So of Abraham's contemporaries, 
It is testified in the case of the subjects of Abimelech, king of Gerar, that they were a righteous nation and the king a man of integrity in Genesis 24 and 6. And in the case of the Sodomites, that they were sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Genesis 13, 13. The abstract possibility of finding righteous men in Sodom was admitted in the Lord's response to Abraham's question, or the angel's response to Abraham's question. If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. It's also found in the existence of godliness as the prevalent quality of man that was at that time is recognized in the remark of Abraham to Abimelech when he said, Surely the presence of God is not in this place. End of quote. Indeed, the entire history of the world before that time, as given in the Bible, is a history of man's relation to God. When Adam was driven out of Eden, his relationship with God was not suspended, though it was changed by the sentence of death, which would affect all mankind. Man was under command to walk in the way of God. But at the end of 1600 years, we find the wickedness of man was great on the earth. All flesh, therefore, except those few who gained safely through God's ark, perished under the waters. We find the flood was not an ending of, God, of the Lord's law among men either. But the assertion of submission to God as the divinely desired rule of life for all men. Thus the continued life of Noah and his family was to be on the basis of submission to God. Later, when we come to Abraham, and we've talked about Abraham a lot, of course we know that Abraham is the father of the faithful. We do not come to the introduction of a new principle, but to the beginning of a new form of the same principle that was before. By Abraham's faith in believing the call of God to leave the country of his birth, in which he knew so well, Abraham became the root from which faith and obedience expanded into a national form, embodying the system of what later would become the law of Moses. Now we would ask in Abraham's day, were there laws for the governing of mankind? Yes, there were. In the form of God's laws handed down through generations for the governing of, governing of his people. We would also ask, were there other laws at this time elsewhere on earth? Well, the answer to that question is also in the affirmative. For men cannot exist in societies without some form or structure of laws or codes to govern man's actions. In 1902, uh, a black diorite stone eight feet high was unearthed at Susa, or biblical Shushan. 
It had been taken from Babylon in the 12th century B.C. when the Elamites conquered and overran Babylon. The interesting thing about this column is that it contains 282 laws written in cuneiform on the stone. This stone dates from around the 18th century B.C. or about the time of the patriarchs. This stone was built and inscribed upon at the order of Hammurabi, which was the king of Babylon at that time. Now, Hammurabi was one of the kings of the first dynasty of Babylon, which ended around 1600 B.C. Under Hammurabi, the Babylonian Empire stretched from the Persian Gulf to the upper Euphrates and upper Tigris, those regions. The effects of this kingdom, however, were felt much farther away than that. And it has been suggested by more than one historian that the person identified as Amraphel, king of Shinar in Genesis 14.1, is actually Hammurabi. If you remember at this time that there was war between the city-states and Amraphel, with the kings allied with him, took Lot, who had been living in Sodom, away with them. Abraham heard of the taking of Lot. So with 300 men, or 318 men, in the faith of deliverance by his heavenly father, he rescued Lot and smote the invading armies. Whereupon Melchizedek, king of Ur-Salem, or city of Salem, which we think is Jerusalem, met with Abraham and brought forth bread and wine. As an aside, or to digress, since we've digressed quite a bit this week, now what was this meal that Melchizedek brought to Abraham? What was this bread and wine? Have we ever thought about this bread and wine that Melchizedek brought out. Now we know that Abraham was a, light, a righteous man of faith. Melchizedek, it is said, was priest of the Most High God or El Elyon. Some have suggested even that this Melchizedek could actually have been Noah's son, Shem. Now we do not know of Hammurabi's fate if this Amraphel was actually him we're not for sure. But we do know that during Hammurabi's 40-year reign, he personally supervised navigation, irrigation, agriculture, tax collection, and the erection of many temples and other buildings. Although he was a successful military leader, usually in his day, evident by the landmass he acquired, the most important thing about his life was his attempt to unify or codify and organize social life by collecting and expanding minor law codes. This is the earliest legal code on earth known in its entirety. The code begins with direction for legal procedure and the statement of penalties for unjust accusations false testimony, and injustice sometimes done by judges. 
Then it follows laws concerning property rights, loans, deposits, debts, domestic property, and family rights. The sections covering personal injury indicate that penalties were imposed for injuries sustained through unsuccessful operations by physicians. Now, wouldn't that have been a procedure uh, done by a physician 4,000 years ago? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be scary? Um, but operations in those days may actually have been better than the ones given some thousands of years later. And for damages caused by neglect in various trades. The law offered protection to all classes of Babylonian society to protect the weak and the poor, the woman, the child, and the slaves against the hands of the rich and powerful. This code was particularly humane in many senses for the time in history that it was in use. Hammurabi stated his laws were the judgments of righteousness. And we find some of them were. But some were both righteous, but they were unequal when we can compare them with the true law which, came, which comes from above. We'd like to compare a few of these with the law of Moses which was written 800 years later. Now for the offense of stealing, in God's law it was restoring double in the, in the Mosaic law. In Habirabi's law, law, it was death. For burglary, God's law, restoring double. Habirabi's law, death. For harboring a fugitive slave, God's law, no offense. In Habirabi's law, death. Seems pretty, pretty tough law. For injuring a slave, God's law was freedom was given to the slave. Hammurabi's law, the master was compensated. For injuring a rich man, in God's law, same injury inflicted upon the injurer. And the same thing in Hammurabi's law. So they agree there. For injuring a poor, poor man, uh, the same injury inflicted on, upon the injurer in God's law. But in Hammurabi's law, it was, the fine was one mina of silver. So we see here some laws may have been just, but some in God's eyes were not. In several instances, though, we see this code, this code of Hammurabi conforming with those laws which we find in Genesis, such as, one, the law of adoption made Eliezer Abraham's heir. Two, the giving of Hagar to Abraham. Three, the giving of Bilhah and Zilpah to Jacob. And four, the purchase by Abraham of Machpelah. Now, Brother Henley in his Sunday school class the other morning stated that secular history vindicates or proves biblical history. And, of course, he was speaking of the prophecies of the past that we find in Scripture, which we see have been fulfilled. This is true. But in my own mind, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with, with Brother Jim, 
I prefer to state that biblical history vindicates or proves secular history with regard to the plan and purpose of God and the areas associated with it. Bullinger notes that the Assyrian tablets are therefore shown to be correct by their agreement with the record in Genesis. I think we need to be cognizant that one cannot always be in agreement with secular history. For it is written by uninspired writers, of which it has been shown many times that they have tried to rewrite historic events, to rewrite about persons and times. We see this in school manuals and textbooks of our children. A rewriting of history, and it's, it's taking place quite a bit lately. Biblical history, on the other hand, was written by inspired writers. It only can be the true history given to us by the true and only authority on high that is our Creator. God's call to the man who is, it is said, walked with him, that is Abraham, necessitated the creation of a national kernel or basis of divine operations in order that God's ultimate purpose of God manifestation throughout the earth could, become, could be accomplished. With its plan of bringing back mankind in reconciliation with him, being part and parcel to that purpose. This national kernel or basis, basis of divine operations would be the enhancement of already active divine operations and judgments within the descendants of Noah to, re to relations with a particular family which would become a nation. And that enables us to understand that there were commandments statutes, and laws before the coming law of Moses. In Genesis 26, 5, we read that. And that there were priests that came near to the Lord before the consecration of Aaron or the operation of the tribe of Levi. Exodus 19:22. Divine law and priesthood were, in fact, as old as Eden. They came into operation immediately after Adam's expulsion on account of disobedience, but in a form suited to the extremely limited circumstances of human life, when Adam, where Adam's family circle, then Noah's family circle, formed the only populations on earth. Remember when Noah came along. It is almost akin to starting all over again, for in fact only eight people sur survived the, delu the deluge. Remember, a public and official priest was not required when every obedient man offered his own sacrifice. Every obedient man was his own priest, as appears in the case of Adam, Abel, Noah, Melchizedek, and Abraham. In the same way, Levi, the son of Jacob, before Jacob had become a nation, appears to have acted as a priest, and to have received divine recognition in the matter by reason of the special aptitude referred 
2 and Malachi 2, 5 through 6. His sons would be likely to take after him in this manner, of which we find Joseph to be a, a marvelous fashion, to be in marvelous fashion doing so, and his being a type of the coming one, the only begotten Son of God. When we come to the law of Moses, given for the governing of a nation of somewhere around three million at that time, at, that, at the outset, we see some of these laws of God already in force by the children of Israel when in captivity in Egypt. These laws had been handed down from Abraham through generations. And we'd like to list a few of these. One, the law of the Sabbath established in Genesis 2, 3, which was mentioned again in Exodus 16, 23, and confirmed in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 5, 14. Two, the law of sacrifices in Genesis 15, 9, confirmed by Moses in Leviticus 1, 2 through 5. Three, the law of clean and unclean, first mentioned in Genesis 7, 2, then affirmed by Mosaic law in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, 3 through 26. Four, the law of the altar unto the Lord first in Genesis 12, 7 and 8, then again under Moses in Exodus 20, 24. Five, the law of circumcision started by Abraham in Genesis 17, 9, 9 and 10, followed by Moses in Leviticus 12, 3. Six, the law of tithing by Abraham in Genesis 14, 20, then in Mosaic law in Leviticus 27, 30 through 32. Seven, the law against adultery in Genesis 23 through 9. And then in the Mosaic law, which we find, uh, you know, is, is in the Ten Commandments, in Leviticus 20.10. Eight, the law of anointing with oil in Genesis 28.18. Then later, in Mosaic law, in Exodus 40.15. And nine, the, the law against marrying those outside the covenant in Genesis 34.44. And confirmed by Moses in Deuteronomy 7.3. Bullinger lists no less than 34 different laws that were incorporated, that were, they were already being used, and they were incorporated into the law of Moses. So in all this, we see laws given by God to the patriarchs and then followed in the law of Moses. Followed on in the law of Moses. This law of Moses, as well as all laws given by God, we find are holy, just, and good. In being holy, they are set apart. In being just, they are without partiality and they are without hypocrisy. And in being good, as in the garden, they are the best that God has for the circumstances involved. Many of the laws, though, are not necessarily followed today since we are no longer under the law of Moses but are governed under the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's not to say that it is wrong for us to follow facets of the law, such as not eating pork and such uh, some things in our dress. But they are not required anymore. What is required, though, is still an adherence, 
still in adherence to the Ten Commandments, which was the basis of the law of Moses. So we see that we are under Christ today. We'd like to turn to uh, something that's very familiar to all of us that's rated out of Galatians. says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond or free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we see that we have skipped forward quite a bit here. We see that we are under Christ today. And as we have heard this week by our exhorting and teaching brethren, all Scripture is in essence, all the laws in essence, point forward to Christ. All the judges point forward to Christ. All the garments of the priests, and indeed the priesthood itself, points forward to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Christ. So let's wrap this up. Let's bring this to us today. What does God's law mean to us? And what do these laws of the past mean to us and how do they apply? As followers of Christ, we are to be holy. We know the term in Greek, of Holy Spirit, as to be pneuma hagion, or uh, pneuma being spirit and hagion is set apart, or holy. We are to be holy or set apart. Now, the word we find in the New Testament in Greek being the word saint, as Paul calls those who follow Christ in Romans 1, 7, 1 Corinthians 1-2, Ephesians 1-1, and Philippians 1-1, means also to be set apart. The word is hagion. It's the same word. The word holy and saint, they are in fact the same word. We are to continue to search the, script, to search the Scriptures. And the Greek word for uh, searching the Scriptures, when we, we touch on the word search, is a radio, which means to track or diligently seek as a lion seeks his prey and as a hound also does on the track. Remember, the lion has to live by the meat that he catches. We must hunger for the meat of the word also. The hound's job is to track the prey. That's his job. That's our job also, to earnestly seek out the kingdom of God. That is our commandment, and that is our job. I'd like to close with a reading in Ephesians.
And this is talking about law once again. Not necessarily civil law, but it's talking about the law that we are under now. It says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1 Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, or wrath, uh, even as others. Actually, wrath is the correct term there. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved, ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and, not, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God." Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are to walk in these good works. We are to walk in God's law. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth or polity, another lawful term, the polity of Israel, or the political form, the polity, the, the, the nation of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both into God in one body by the cross, or the stake having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, those of us that were out, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens, fellow citizens with, the house, with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord." in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So we should, as the title of this, these remarks are, and we don't know how long we have. We don't know if we have a day we have five days, if we have five years, or whatever, before our Master returns to claim His on this earth. Today is the day of our salvation. 
We should choose ye this day whom ye will serve, as Joshua told the people. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And has been stated by Brother Harold in his, what we find in Psalms 122. Sha'alu Shalom Yerushalayim Yishalahu. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Thank you.